Jesus. Someone's gonna break him! Oh god, what did I just pour into my gullet? I have her! I like them on my face. That tongue was huge! I want the guy to be home. Welcome to the seventh episode of the long-awaited Amazing Race Australia 2 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Armstrong, and joining me as always is a Canadian who isn't the best tonight, but he is enough, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the lady who uses her experience as a wife to deal with us on this podcast, Michelle pierce Denovan. Oh, Jesus. Good morning. Yes, yes. I have been waiting all day for Michelle to have to deal with Grace. <laughs> <laughs> I sent Logan a message earlier just going, oh, Michelle's going to hate this quote. (laughs) My God. Yes, let's get up to it. (laughs) Yeah. We'll barrel through the first half of the episode before Michelle loses her ever-loving shit and we can just mute ourselves for five minutes. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yep. So previously, eight teams continued racing through Istanbul. Michelle and Joe were yielded by their favourite friends, Paul and Steve, while teams were in a lather. Paul and Steve won their second leg in a row, while Ross and Taryn were also last for their second leg in a row and were eliminated from the race. And I also love how Grant is wearing exactly the same jumper when he introduces Bayesit Square as he did when introducing the Archaeological Museum, so he's obviously done both on the same day. The teams must now fly to Paris in France. Grant says it's home to spectacular monuments, awe-inspiring architecture, and the greatest concentration of restaurants in the world, none of which they will be visiting. Instead, they have to travel to Le Cordon Bleu Cooking School, where they will find their next clue. And it's Paul and Steve leaving at 11.42am, Michelle and Joe at 11.48, Joseph and Grace at 12.27, Sticky and Sam at 12.28, Lucy and Amelia at 1.36, Shane and Andrew at 1.38, and James and Sarah at 4.20pm. Nice. Lucy and Amelia starting off in their best position, but yet are 114 minutes behind the lead. Yep. And they have a cool hundo for this leg of the race. That's crazy, isn't it? I wrote that down because it's so far. They're so far apart. Like they don't, they can't even, they can't even catch up on that. There's something to be said for how they do the race now where they do level them up quite a bit and then people have a chance. But, oh, look, if you could go back to these times, would you, would you do it so that people don't have a chance? Yeah, because James and Sarah do have a chance. With this leg being the way that it is, they have two whole flies to catch up. Mm. Plus, let's be honest, the off-air overnight rest period that they actually had in Cuba. Yeah. Plus all that sort of stuff. They absolutely can catch up on this leg. Whether they do is a whole other story, but they can catch up. It's not insurmountable for them to catch up, even though they are nearly three hours behind Shane and Andrew. Yeah. Because if you bear in mind, Paul and Steve leave at 11.42. And the cooking class at the Cordon Bleu doesn't start till 9pm. Yeah. The flight's only about four hours at most. So that's a lot of waiting around for Paul and Steve and Michelle and Joe especially. Granted, I assume Paris traffic was horrendous. I think when Paul and Steve were in Paris, Steve said, oh, I wonder how six o'clock traffic is going to be in Paris. So clearly they weren't waiting around 
uh, Le Cordon Bleu as long as we were led to believe on TV. No, I've I've been driven through Paris a fair number of times. I make it sound posher than it is, in the back of a car when we're going on family holidays. And Le Perifique, which is the big ring road around Paris, is always snarled. It is one of the most horrific roads to drive on in the world. It's always busy. So they would have had horrible traffic from Charles de Gaulle, no matter what time of day it was. So Michelle and Joe say that they've come second so much and prove that they're not just pretty faces, and they do confirm that we have $100 for this leg of the race. And I think it was actually given in US dollars rather than in uh, in dollars this time. Certainly looked like US bills this time. Interesting. Early in the season, Joseph underestimated Grace, and she says she needs to prove herself this leg. Lucy and Amelia, when they find out they're going to Paris, lose their ever-loving shit at the mention of France. You think they won the season and just crossed the finish <laughs> line in first place when they read the clue? Yeah. It's a wonderful reaction, because obviously it's a, an editor's dream to see them lose their shit and be able to use it in all the uh, in all the adverts for the week. But they are rather excited at uh, going to a country where they speak the language fluently. Yeah, Lucy and Amelia were like the women you see in the audience for an Oprah Winfrey giveaway. Mm. <laughs> and if you cast your mind back to leg four, they said that they were excited to go to Dubai because they were getting nearer and nearer to Europe where they can actually speak the language. They specifically said Italy, but as we find out, Lucy does fluently speak French. The bad news for them is that just like Charlie Brown with the ball, production are going to kick it away from them and only give them about 12 hours in Paris. Sad. It's hilarious, that's what it is. So we get the same confessional as last leg with Shane and Andrew talking about having families and missing them, but with the addition of their wives being jealous of them getting to go to Paris. Michelle and Joe arrive eight minutes before a Turkish airline flight closes, which Paul and Steve notice happening. Both teams get on that 1.45pm flight, arriving at 4.25pm. Lucy and Amelia, Shane and Andrew, Joseph and Grace and Sticky and Sam are on the second flight, leaving at 3.15 and landing at 5.55. And James and Sarah say that normally if you're last, you eventually see people, but they haven't seen anyone for days. And they leave Istanbul on their own at 6.40pm on a flight arriving at 9.25pm. And we also have time for Paul to do a stereotypical French laugh in confessional. Is it more or less offensive than Justin's French laugh in season 27? I think this is more offensive, to be honest. Just because it's twice as many people doing the laugh? Yeah. When they get to the Cordon Bleu, they find out it's a roadblock, which is who is a rising star. In this roadblock, one team member must bake a souffle using a given recipe to get their next clue. And it's Steve, Michelle, Lucy, Grace, Sam, Andrew, and Sarah doing this roadblock. And they have to sign up for cooking classes, dividing them into two groups, the first of which starts at 9pm. It's late, isn't it? It's still going. It's very late. It's a night leg. And I believe that this is actually a real thing at the Cordon Bleu to have the night cooking classes. It's not something that they put on, especially for Amazing Race. Arguably, they did, you know, block book the cooking classes, but it is, I believe, a thing at uh, Le Cordon Bleu to to do these night Mm. cooking classes. Well, in Western Europe, it's common to not have dinner till nine o'clock at night. Yeah, it was a normal sign-up sheet for Cordon Bleu cooking classes by the look of things. Uh, Lucy and Amelia immediately use their French skills and are hugely appreciative of seeing the sights of Paris. And in fact, I think Amelia cries in the taxi. And I love how when we see the sign-up sheet, it tells us that the date is November the 30th, and teams seem to have to put their race team number on the sheet as well. So we find out that Steve is from team number two. Michelle also looks like she's from team number two, but obviously she won't be. 
Emilia is Team 7, and Joseph and Grace, unlike everyone else, don't put their full names on there. It's just Joseph plus Caristo. He doesn't even write Grace's name on it. <laughs> He's the only teammate not to write his partner's name on. Is this reminiscent of Season 6, where when Jonathan goes to sign him and Victoria up on the board, he just writes Jonathan Baker in big block letters across the sign-up board? And there are 15 steps to the recipe, and all of them are integral and will stop your souffle rising if they're wrong. Lucy says she's never made a souffle before, but she does have a repertoire of three cakes that she rotates. And now, I'm going to mute, Logan's going to mute, because Grace says that this challenge will determine (laughs) if she will make a good wife or not. Oh my god. Does she actually live in the real... Is she living in the 50s, first of all? Oh my god, it's the 50s or the 60s, I don't understand. Like, she is like the worst example of a woman for the progression of women rights. Like, seriously, what are her parents doing? How did they bring her up? What is her mother doing? Is her mother just downtrodden and in the kitchen and doesn't do anything else? Like, this is what I want to know. I thought this was an Australian thing. So, Michelle, when, when you like when you're walking down the aisle, did they did they just suddenly set up a whole kitchen to see if you could make a souffle, <laughs> and if you made a good enough souffle, and it's like, okay, now we can do the vows. My God, this is so bad. Who is she? I don't understand how she could possibly live in. What year did they make this? 20... 2011. 11, exactly. I was about to say 10, but even 2011. My God. Seriously. I have to say, I had forgotten about Grace's quotes here, plural. And when I watched this episode again earlier, I winced. I had to pause the episode, I winced, and thought, Michelle is absolutely not going to take that lying down. I'm wondering what she thinks of it now. Like, does she still think the same way? The irony is she has a food business. She set up a food business at the start of the year. So obviously she can cook now. I'd like to know if she winces at her own quotes now. And be at 33 versus 22. Yeah. On the other end of the scale, you have Steve who says that he's thankful his mum taught him to cook. Like, this is something we didn't know about Steve. We don't arguably know a lot about Steve, because Paul is the main focus of the team, obviously. But Steve just has these very subtle moments, like, oh, my mum told me to cook, so I'm not as worried as I could be about this. I have a lot of bling. (laughs) Yeah. I have mentioned on previous podcasts, I like to bake. I don't think I would have that much of a problem with this sort of a challenge. I would probably volunteer for this roadblock. And it's really insulting to see Grace say things like that and laugh it off like oh yeah this is just what everyone thinks it's like no Grace no. get your head out of the clouds please yeah we get a lot of personality insight into everybody you think oh it's just a it's just a throwaway cooking task in a very very epic leg but no we get a lot of insight into just everybody's background or some of the skills that they possess. It's just funny when Steve says, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that I was taught how to cook. And especially with just knowing people my age, knowing lots of other couples, it's just funny to think of 
another couple I know where there there's a husband wife that I know where the wife was fully expecting her husband to cook dinner for her every night. So when she got home from work, the husband would be working all day too, but he was expected to uh, provide dinner for her. So it's just funny that in certain relationships that there's somehow these expectations that we all view as being very odd or very insulting to one gender or the other that just one person thinks should be the societal norm. Yeah. Do you know who cooks in my household? Everyone. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we all have at least one day. Arguably, mum does do the majority of the cooking, but we all do uh, at least one day a week in my household because it's a life skill. Yes. It's funny, too, just thinking back with, made me think of just uh, more Catholic countries, too, like uh, in the Philippines there, where Jan was telling me, where the Gender roles haven't really advanced quite as much compared to Western countries. Where Jan was somebody, there's a lot of couples where it's expected that the wife is supposed to cook all the meals and stuff. And then I remember my cousin and I went out to went out to a restaurant with Jan once, and my cousin just said out loud, "Oh, so you guys are like what it was like in the 1950s or 1960s here in Canada and the states." And there's people on Instagram who have posted saying that, oh, they still believe in certain gender roles or certain jobs that only men should have and certain jobs only women should have. And in 2011, when a lot of Western countries are watching Amazing Race Australia, and you have Grace say something like, oh, yeah, the this, this souffle challenge will determine if I'm going to make a good wife or not. It's not going to fly too well with the audience that will be watching this season. And it's very, it's very cringe-inducing. Very, very cringe-inducing. No, it's fine to have those beliefs-ish. And it's fine to have it as long as it works for your relationship. But the editors include it here yet again to undermine Grace and to make her look like a knobhead. It makes it makes her look very, very shallow on TV. It kind of reminds me of just how much they put down Jenna Maraska in the edit during Survivor Amazon. She was 21 at the time with a lot of the things she was saying and compared to, you know, 20 years later now where Jenna Maraska would not be saying about 80% of the things that she said during her original season. So I'm curious, even 11 years later, just how much Grace says, you know what... That is not the person I am now. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to give Grace the benefit of the doubt 11 years after this filmed and aired. But a lot of these quotes from the first seven episodes now are really not good for Grace. And I, I have to draw attention to the fact that this episode is the third one this season where she has had the episode title. And all three of them have been quotes that make her look stupid. It just, she comes off very, very shallow to the audience. Like, she's she's picking on Paul without understanding Paul. She's really, really focused on people's appearances. She's really focused on Sarah's appearance. She's really focused on her own appearance. She's focused on the appearance of the shirtless Turkish men. It's just all about physical looks and gender stereotypes with her. And it, in 2011, that... That didn't even fly even then. True, true. I mean, the episode three one was a Grace one, which was, I don't really like to use my brain. Then you had No More Showing Off, which is the episode four one. And now you have How Do You Fold Liquid? 
Yeah. How do you fold liquid? <laughs> it's like, we wait for a building. Yeah, you just wait for it to be built. But it's not really liquid. Once egg whites are whisked, they're not liquid. Like it said to fold the egg whites in, and they're not liquid though. It's sort of a false state of matter. You have yeah. solid, liquid, gas, and egg white. Yeah. <laughs> but only when the egg white is sufficiently ploofed. Ploofed, I know. How yeah. good is that word? Ploof. Ploof. Is that a word I can use in Scrabble? Is that in the Scrabble dictionary? Ploof. I love it. You have Lucy and Amelia's language teachers, and they're using words like ploof that don't exist. Hyman, <laughs> that has not come up in Duolingo. Can I just say, in all these years of podcasting, who would have ever thought that we would talk about folding egg whites <laughs> yeah i thought you were going to say who'd have thought we would have gone to bat for non-gender normative relationships oh, God. <laughs> i'm gonna say we do a lot of these uh these sort of standing up for people rants recently yeah. especially so grace just to get undermined again forgets to put her sugar in and puts it in halfway through burning the sugar and needs to start again and steve's souffle looks bad but it tastes good and he leaves the roadblock in first and teams has now travel by taxi to Rungis Wholesale Market and find a cheese stall where they will collect a 30 kilo wheel of cheese from John Marie Cheesemaker. They must then transport the cheese 25 kilometers to a cheese shop where they can exchange it for their next clue if it is undamaged. Is it still the largest wholesale food market in the world? <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. It is, yes. I checked it earlier. <laughs> I knew it. It is absolutely massive. And in fact, that, um, that pub has. James and Sarah call it when they eventually call the taxi. It's actually a restaurant not too far from the uh, the cheese section of Rungi's Wholesale Market. And is Jean-Marie still the manager there? Did he look into that? I don't know. I couldn't find any information on that. Can you imagine an Amazing Race superfan goes to that specific wholesale food market and looks for Jean-Marie and takes a selfie with him and says, oh, you're not going to believe what I found today. Can you guys tell me what episode this is? Can you tell me what Jean-Marie Cheesemaker's from? <laughs> I'm really starstruck here. So at 10 p.m., Sam and Andrew start their class, and Sarah comes in five minutes later, and she doesn't cook. The most she will do for James is Vegemite and cheese toasties in the morning. Lucy didn't realize that she had to time it herself, but the judge still likes her souffle, and they leave in second for the first and, let's be honest, only time this season. They really needed more Europe legs for them. Andrew then mispronounces Grand Marnier's Grand Mignor. Oh my god. Seriously. And I believe Grand Manure is actually the correct description for leg six of this season. <laughs> yeah, you can't make a souffle with Grant's Manure. That's just... You can't do that. That was from uh, leg two anyway, Grant's Manure. <laughs> yeah. Sarah struggles to separate her eggs and it falls on the worktop and the chef has to intervene and get to start again <laughs> after she tries to just scrape them into the bowl. <laughs> She's scraping it into the bowl. <laughs> it's his face. <laughs> is this the one where um is this the one where the sous chef winces? I can't remember. Yeah. Yes. He winces as he sees yes. her scraping into the bowl. He's like, no, 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 no. The food director's gonna get food poisoning if we give this to him. <laughs> you gotta start over again, sir. Michelle then brings her souffle over and Amelia is sat behind her, meaning there's been some monkeying with the timeline. And she has to try again, though, as her souffle is undercooked. Sam and Andrew then collaborate again and put their souffles in at the same time. 
Grace's doesn't look good, but she still leaves in third. Or when he gets to Rungus Wholesale Market, asks the man if he knows Jean-Marie Cheese Seller like it is his real name. And Michelle leaves in fourth as her souffle is actually cut this time. And Sarah, being very clever, listens to everyone else's mistakes to help her get ahead. Or help her catch up, more importantly. Andrews is perfect, and he leaves in fifth. And Sam's isn't the best, but it is enough, and he leaves in sixth. Yeah, the, the director guy. Everything. It was like the. It was the stereotype of a Frenchman with just the backhanded compliments. It's not the best tonight, but I think it's enough. It's good enough. Yeah, I've seen better, but I guess I can give this clue to you and approve of it. I mean, it's okay. It's not the worst. Uh, I can make a better one myself. Sarah leaves in last, and James says it is like him completing a makeup challenge. And all that says to me is that James should have done this one if him doing a makeup challenge is the same as her doing a cooking one, because it sounds like he should have done a cooking challenge. Yeah, I guess he would have done this one really well. Although, I guess now James can try and uh, be on the circle, I guess. Yeah. Then he could do a makeup challenge. Yeah, good point. Uh, Michelle and Joe find a hidden staircase to get to Jean-Marie Cellar, and Lucy and Amelia have the foresight to get a trolley, but they are also trapped in the lift with Paul and Steve. Sounds like an R. Kelly song. Uh, when Paul picks up the cheese he says it's not like a 30 kilo dumbbell you can just carry in one hand because he's being a braggart Jesus he was very proud to be carrying that 30 kilogram wheel of cheese he turned into Gaston because he's in France now (laughs) no one lives like Paul does (laughs) (laughs) no one punches you right in the dick like Deadpool Did you change the words? He he was (laughs) quoting Deadpool. Uh. Yeah, I was I was quoting a fan video of Deadpool. It's brought to our attention then that it is strongly recommended in the clue for the taxi drivers to wait, and Grace's driver doesn't want to, and she decides to take James and Sarah's cab. And Joseph says when they've already taken it that it is perfectly fine to steal a taxi. Now, Mister Talstorian, is it perfectly fine to steal a taxi? Uh, uh, ask Jason and Amy. The answer is no. It's a move that will get you hated very, very quickly. It's kind of funny because at the when they were doing the roadblock and Sarah walks in and Grace is there, she says, oh, hey, Sarah, as if she's her best friend. 45 minutes later, Joseph and Grace are paying off a cab driver to steal a cab. Also, how have they got the money to pay them off? Because it's it's a long journey to Rungus Wholesale Market and then 25 kilometers back to the cheese shop. Yeah, and it's only $100 they were given for this leg and they had $90 for the for leg six, right? Um, can I just say that she would never have left in that taxi if I was there. <laughs> I would have been chucking her bags back out of the car. I wouldn't have touched her because there's the whole assault issue, but her bags would not have been in that car, and I would have sat in that car with her until she got the hell out of there. The minor issue of assault. Well, we've had oh, we've yes. had a we've had a weird situation like that in season five, episode two, when Chip and Kim and Cammy and Carly knew or thought they were in a fight for dead last. And they just both sat in the cab waiting for one of them to just give up and hop out. Grace would have met her match. Seriously. 
Do you know the really fun thing? James and Sarah did an interview after this uh, after this episode had aired with, I think it was the West Australian, and James said that there are so few cabs at Rungi's Wholesale Market that it took them 10 hours to find one. Jesus Christ. 10 hours? They had that cheese for 10 hours, is what James said. No wonder it got inspected. Yeah. You know how James and Sarah were arguing all the time? It went like that for 10 hours. <laughs> That's why James kept saying, like, let it go. <laughs> After, maybe he waited, like, he may not He may not even said, you know, you gotta let this go until four or five hours of Sarah scolding him. And then it carried on all the way through the night, into the daylight, onto the plane from Paris to Havana, and I bet when James was trying to figure it out how to draw to drive the Cuban car, Sarah was still saying, "Oh, I can't believe, I can't believe you didn't fight over that cab a bit more," because we even see just how angry they are with each other in the confessionals too, where they where they still haven't resolved this issue about James being too passive with Joseph and Grace trying to steal the cab. No, and it's really uncomfortable to watch because also in that interview, they revealed that they broke up after this episode had aired. A few hours after it aired was when James broke up with Sarah and they did briefly uh, reconcile, but they obviously are not together now. So it was not during the episode when they broke up, it was when it aired on TV? Yeah, so it is sometime around about the 6th of July, I believe, is when this episode aired. And a few hours after it aired, they uh, they broke up. <laughs> Was it because of just rewatching when they realized, yeah, we're really not compatible? Well, I think they reconciled for about six months and then didn't get back together after that. And it makes Grace come off that much worse because she doesn't say, I would have stolen any team's cab because of how desperate I was. Like, I mean, Joseph and Grace have to do something. Their cab left them. They know the clue said, you really need to keep your taxi. Like, Joseph and Grace can't just stand there for 10 hours i assume stealing a taxi wasn't their first choice of tactic but it doesn't come off as well when grace does have a confessional that airs that says "Mm, if it was sticky and sam or shane and andrew i wouldn't have stolen the cab but because it was james and sarah and specifically sarah's cab then i was okay with stealing it because i want to see her specifically go home it wasn't so much as a I'm trying to save myself, it's I want to put someone else down. So it's another situation that really makes Grace that much more the villain of the season, even though it feels like constantly picking on her, but she's not doing herself any favors when she's saying, I specifically stole James and Sarah's cab as opposed to somebody else's cab. Yeah, I want to point out, I don't hate Grace. I think she is the villain of this season by far, and I think people were blinded by their hatred of Paul at the time, and uh, that needs recalibrating. I see a very young, immature girl when I rewatch this season. Yeah, young, immature, shallow, that really gets encapsulated here. I think hopefully in the past 11 years, by the time that this comes out, she has done a bit of self-reflection and learnt from The Amazing Race. And I suspect she probably has. But the editors don't like her. (laughs) It is plain to see how much they did not like some of the things that Grace did or said, because we are seeing 
so much stuff that she did. And usually the rule with this sort of stuff is if we're seeing this sort of stuff, there was worse stuff that they didn't put in. And the problem is there were such strict NDAs at the time that we still don't actually know 11 years later whether my theory that actually Grace probably said some worse shit and we didn't see it is true. But you know the solution to the the taxi disappearing issue for them? You convince the driver who you have to ring another one for you. If he's not able to stick around, doesn't mean one from his company isn't. Yeah, they could have just done that with their original cab driver and say, oh, can you just call us a different one then if you don't want to stick around? Because mm. by the time that they go and get the cheese and find Jean-Marie Cheesemaker, the taxi will probably be waiting for them. It's interesting to note, too, that I assume Joseph and Grace's cab wasn't just wanting to take off due to being unfriendly. It's probably because I'm in the middle of nowhere where no tourists would ever go in Paris. I'm not earning any money by sticking around here. And it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night at this point. I think Grace said she took two hours to do the souffle, so it's probably about half 11 by this point. So Michelle and Joe leave the cheese shop in first, and the teams must now find the Debilly footbridge and find a painter who will give them their next clue. Paul and Steve arrive second, with Lucy and Amelia arriving third, and they say Paris is delivering everything they asked for, apart from cute guys. Oh, there was one other thing about the cab theft incident I want to point out. During the fight, the way that Joseph tries to get James and Sarah to let them steal the cab is when he says, I think I saw a cab near the front. There's no way he saw an empty (laughs) cab just driving around the front. I mean, for all of my irritation at Grace, Joseph is almost as bad. He's endorsing everything she does. Yeah. That's something you can't forget for all the, oh yeah, we're picking on a young, innocent girl here. Joseph is co-signing pretty much everything she does. He co-signed the stealing the taxis. He co-signed the harassing Paul in uh, in Dubai. Like, Joseph is as bad here. Yeah, because I think he said that it's fun to push Paul's buttons. He said we should take it even further. He wanted us to keep doing it before a producer presumably stepped in and went, knock it off, children. So James and Sarah find a restaurant to call a taxi for them, and they have another argument about whether they need to walk five minutes to find it. Their relationship has never been this low, and the race could be make or break for them. I thought this is this moment is when they broke up and said, hmm, we have two very different perspectives when approaching these situations. Yeah, I'm 99.99% sure that they broke up when it aired rather than when it filmed. And... I just found it hilarious during the argument too when they're when Sarah's like, Well, we should wait here for the cab rather than elsewhere on the sidewalk and then James says, Well, who's gonna steal this cab? One of ten teams that are around us? The swarms of people that are around here at three o'clock in the morning? I think we're safe. And of course, this being France, the painter is indeed smoking a cigarette as he hands out the clues. Yeah. Interesting. A nice national stereotype there before we leave France. All that was missing was for him to be snacking on a baguette or something. And to be wearing a beret and a necklace of uh, (laughs) garlic or onions. And a shirt with white and blue stripes. Yep. (laughs) So once teams open the clue with the painter, they find out they have to now fly to Havana in Cuba. Once there, they have to find classic cars at the airport and drive themselves to the famous Tropicana nightclub, where the lead showgirl will give them their next clue. But first, there was an unaired detour in Cuba as well. Mm, what was it? 
choosing between learning a Cuban dance and rolling two Cuban cigars each to get their next clue. The only reason we know that is because a certain Mr. Saunders got it out of Shane and Andrew when he spoke to them. You're welcome. The detour in Cuba was actually a complete mystery until a couple of years ago when Logan interviewed Shane and Andrew. And is actually one of our most cited episodes as a result. In other quotes that definitely haven't aged well news, Michelle is looking forward to going to Cuba as it will be warm, and I quote, there are hot black men there. I had to re-listen to that clip saying, did she say what I think she said? Yep. (laughs) And do you remember how Lucy and Amelia were so excited for Dubai because it got them closer to Europe where they would have a language advantage? They were in Europe for 12 hours. Poor ladies. They would have had more time if Joseph and Grace had stolen their cab. Yeah. They could have been so excited to see Rungus Cheese Market. So romantic. Shane and Andrew's wives are going to be so jealous. So Joseph and Grace leave in fourth with Shane and Andrew in fifth, and James and Sarah say that Paris wasn't the city of love for them, it was the city of hate. Sticky and Sam deliver their cheese in sixth, but struggle to find a taxi who will take them to the footbridge, as they don't have an address for it. (laughs) The the taxi driver. I need an address. Mate, it's a bridge. I, I, I... Need an address. But it's it's a bridge. There is no address. And that's ridiculous, isn't it? Head towards the sand. You'll find it. So they decide to jump on the metro, which is an underground or something. And James and Sarah leave in last and find a cab. Shane and Andrew overtake Joseph and Grace to get their clue in fourth, and James and Sarah get their clue in sixth, meaning that Sticky and Sam for the first time all season are in last place. I should note that... This leg went the whole night because it's daylight before teams even some of the, half the teams even get to the footbridge. This was a long night in France. Yeah, so this filmed right at the start of December because it was the 30th of November they did the uh, the cooking challenge. The first teams arrived at 4.25pm and three of those teams didn't leave until 11am from Charles de Gaulle to go to Havana. No wonder Joseph looks like a zombie in his confessionals. At best, the France bit of this was 17 and a half hours. That's a long time. It is a long time. That's like three legs of Amazing Race 34. Yeah. (laughs) And Steve has the unfortunate quote of, I think they speak Spanish in Cuba. Actually, they probably speak Cuban. So the first three teams leave at 11am on a flight. Uh, Shane and Andrew also get on that flight at 11am, which arrives at 3.10pm. And James and Sarah and Sticky and Sam are on the 1.45pm flight, due to arrive at 5.50pm. James and Sarah also tell Sticky and Sam about the taxi incident. And, yeah, I think this would have set up nicely for a must-vote U-turn next leg, but of course we don't see it. Do we know exactly where the detour was as well? Was it before or after Tropicana? I thought it was at Tropicana. Yeah, I think it must be at Tropicana because obviously the logical place is before they get the clue from the lead showgirl because Grant does the voiceover and we don't actually hear anyone say go to the famous club Tropicana or whatever, which is usually the sign of where the cut tests are. But when they arrive in Cuba, I think it's Michelle and Joe when they're looking at the map say, oh, we've got to go all the way to the north of the island because we're going to the Tropicana nightclub. And we see, I think it's Paul and Steve, when they leave Tropicana, reading out the clue to say, drive yourselves to uh, Hotel Nacional, the pit stop for this leg of the race. 
Yeah. So I think it must have been at Tropicana. And also that would that would put you in old Havana, so there would have been a lot of touristy shops set up to roll cigars. So and of course if the other half of the task is dancing, that's gonna be the ideal place to do it. So I'm sure it was all set up pretty much right there. Yeah. That's the only place I can kind of fit it into the chronology in my mind. And it's fair to say people do not have a fun time driving these Cuban cars. Jesus. Did this go better or worse than the Travants? Oh, worse. Because if you bear in mind, the best case scenario was 17 and a half hours in France. Those teams had already probably raced for about four hours before they flew. I could probably work it out, but I can't bother at the moment. Then they have a 10 and a half hour flight from Paris to Havana, because I looked that up a few days ago. And then on top of that, they then got to drive not only a manual car, which isn't the most common thing in Australia, but a really awkward type of manual car with the gear stick behind the steering wheel, which you never get anywhere outside of somewhere where a classic car is around. Have either of you been to Cuba? I have not. God, no. no. <laughs> so with, with Cuba too, if you're trying to figure out directions... By 2011, I mean, we had this leg where Shane and Andrew found somebody with an iPhone to figure out how to get to the footbridge. In Cuba, they don't really have the internet there, even when I was there in 2017. So what you do in Cuba, if you want to access the internet, is you have to spy these special Wi-Fi cards from kiosks, and it gives you one hour of Wi-Fi, and it's quite expensive for Cubans to to be able to purchase this and you could spend up to the entire hour trying to access wi-fi so you can't just go up to somebody and say oh can i look up directions on your phone you can't do that there wow yeah <laughs> when was this how many years ago 2017 so this is six Jeez. years almost six Jesus. years after this episode would have filmed so if you're lost in Cuba and you're trying to find directions, you can't just go up to a random local and say, oh, can I look it up on your phone like we've seen since, you know, season 16, 17 or 18 with where people can just use smartphones. So it, it makes it a lot, lot tougher if you're really, really lost and don't know where to go. So if, for instance, Sticky and Sam don't speak a word of Spanish and they're trying to get directions, you're only hope is from a local that can speak English because you can't just say, oh, can I use your phone for a second? Because there's no way to access the internet to look up directions. That's insane. Yeah, so and another fun side story. I don't know if this has come up on the podcast before, but when I flew to Cuba, because that was after I'd gone through Western Europe and my path was because I was in I think I was in Rotterdam, so I flew from Rotterdam to Malaga, I think. And then Malaga to Moscow, Moscow to Havana. So there was a long period where I wasn't really on my phone at all to upload pictures and stuff. And I guess uh, the day where I would have been connecting through Moscow, there was some sort of subway attack right near the airport. And then when I got into Havana, I found out that nowhere really has Wi-Fi unless you want to pay a bunch of money for these Wi-Fi cards. So I guess my family back home had seen the the Moscow subway airport terrorist attack and made the news. And I didn't even access the internet until three or four days later when somebody gave me their Wi-Fi card and no one back home knew this about Cuba where you can't really access the Wi-Fi. So when I logged on, 
I had a bunch of messages in my inbox saying, uh, are you okay? Are you alive? Because I guess they had seen it on the news about this terrorist attack. And then I didn't surface online for about four or five days. Gosh. Yeah, on the Wi-Fi thing, you have to bear in mind the locations of the back half of this season in terms of Wi-Fi availability. Because you have Cuba, where it's so restrictive. You have Canada, where it's still dial-up. <laughs> then you go to Beijing, where you're behind the Great Firewall, so you can't use Google Maps or anything. So between France and Australia, you basically wouldn't be able to use the internet to help you at all. And to put it further, with this leg going from Istanbul to a whole night leg in Paris, a secondary flight scramble to get into Havana, then you're forced to drive the worst car ever that teams have had to drive in any season of Amazing Race ever. (laughs) And then you are going to have a really, really tough time being able to get directions, especially if you can't communicate in Spanish. So it's, yeah, this would be a very, very tough leg to get through. Is it fair to say this is the toughest leg in Amazing Race history? It's got to be. I mean, it's definitely the most draining one I can think of. I mean, we heard Shane and Andrew talk about the overnight rest period in Cuba where it was nasty in there. Where there were like the whole area where they were sleeping was completely flooded, and the pit stop was only four or six hours, I think. Four four hours after all that. I think it was like four or six hours. Wasn't that in the interview, Michael? Where they said like the whole area just flooded out, and it was just that was like the most miserable they felt all season. I think this is more of a thing for when we discuss the end of this, like next episode, but. Yeah, basically, because it's obviously a double length leg or a keep on racing, depending on how you categorize it. And there will be an argument on that, but it'll be next episode because it plays into the result of next episode. Yet, yeah, production realized that the teams were so dead on their feet that they had to give them some sort of rest. So they arranged some sort of rest area and allowed them to have like four hours sleep there. But yeah, it wasn't the most pleasant place that anyone had to sleep on the Amazing Race. And Havana in general, with accommodation like when I stayed in Havana, I was in an apartment and there were multiple power outages every single day I was there. I got trapped in an elevator in Havana for 20 minutes or so. And then we had, luckily I was in the elevator with the Cuban man and he used his phone to call somebody to come to where the elevator was and coach us how to open it from the inside. Basically, despite the fact that it is either a keep-on-racing leg or a double-end leg, depending on how you categorize it, they still had to actually enforce a rest period, which they've never had to do on any other double-length or keep-on-racing leg, and actually find a location for them to forcibly sleep, because these people have been on the road for, at this point, a lot of hours. The leading teams would have been on the road for 32 hours at this point. That's ridiculous. I mean, they would have been able to get some sleep on the plane but it's not enough and also the thing is the flight that they take into havana is 11 o'clock at 145 so your body clock would be screwed anyway from all the the racing as it is then you're traveling during the day then you land during the day which is terrible for you so you're going to be super jet lagged from that alone Mm. it is a very punishing leg this one so michelle and joe find some strong men to push their car Lucy and Amelia switch cars and have a little bit more success with actually being able to drive the second one. Sarah says the car is a cross between a lawnmower and a truck, and the key falls out as James is driving, but it still works, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) He's finding that really funny. 
Shane and Andrew struggle with how to open the boot, but all they can find is the bonnet switch. And Paul and Steve are the first to arrive at Club Tropicana. And Steve says it's a bit of an experience. Apparently they were just told that the showgirls would lead them to their next clue, so they didn't realise that they were going to be meeting the lead one. Michael, I have a question for you. Is this the Club Tropicana that is featured in the Wham song? I believe so, yes. Ah, thank you. <laughs> That's all I wanted to know. Hence Grant saying the infamous Club Tropicana. I think it is the uh, the one that's featured in the one song. Yeah. Thanks. So teams must now find the Hotel Nationale, the pit stop for this leg of the race. The last team to check in may be eliminated. Yeah, we get full-on Godfather 2 theme here. Shane and Andrew's bonnet starts creeping up higher and higher, obscuring Shane's vision, which is, you know, even more of a death trap <laughs> for these cars. No, can't see! It's like driving in Grand Theft Auto if you bump into another car and then they have that effect where the front of the car keeps going higher and higher until it just flings off the car. (laughs) It was like a video game moment here. Except Shane and Andrew had enough sense to just stop the car before before it flung off. I really couldn't even see. I'm like, Jesus, how are you driving? Has he got his head out the window? Well, Andrew had to hold the door shut, if I'm not mistaken, while <laughs> holding the map with the other hand. No, he, he had to hold it slightly open so that the light would still work. That's what it was. So they had the bonnet coming up and the door slightly open because uh, they needed the light to work. And then Joseph has continues his tradition of draining another car battery. Hmm. He stalls another car in the middle of an intersection this time and Grace has to arrange for some men to help them push. And Michelle channels her inner Kim and Donna by smashing the car into a curb, so they get another push start. And it is a very stop-start journey. Michelle ends up screaming at Joe in frustration. Yeah, Joe says, Michelle, why why do you keep, you know, why can't you get this car moving? Why do you keep doing that? Why did, why did you stop the car? I didn't stop it, Joey. You have no idea how hard this is to drive. And then you cue the people on social media saying, you guys should have learned how to drive a stick before the race started. Right, can I just say this? As you well know, I drive a manual car. I could not drive that car. It would fry my brain. Because the gear stick's not in the normal place. You're in the wrong side of the car as it is, because we have right-hand drive in the UK, as do Australia. And you're trying to change gears using the stick behind the wheel. It just wouldn't be natural. Yeah, like the gears are where the turning signal would normally be. Yeah, so I think from my limited experience of this sort of car, you have both the windscreen wipers and the indicators on the same side of the wheel, and then you have the gear stick on the other side. If Shane and Andrew were working as cops here, they could ticket every car that drove by in Havana. Oh my god. <laughs> Nothing would be going anywhere. Looks like you don't have any seat belts. Uh, your gear's in the wrong spot. Your bonnet is completely covering your windshield <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and you've got your door slightly open while while you're driving. <laughs> this is a hefty fine. The best thing about the Michelle and Joe thing is the fact that they end up getting a local to help her with the pedals. Oh, how good is that? So impractical. They definitely bent the rules because in the American version, after season 11, you weren't allowed to have people in the car with you helping you out or directing you. You weren't allowed to hire a cab driver to lead the way, but for some reason in Havana, they let teams do that. So I don't know if that was just a reprieve when they, when production figured out, okay, this car is going to be, they need lifelines. They need lifelines to be able to complete this leg. And that's why it's like, okay, you can have the guy in the car help you do the pedals and steering 
or you can hire this cab driver to lead you the way. Do you think that production underestimated how intense this leg would be? Yes, I think so, because they've never attempted anything like this again. No, because if you think the next Amazing Race Australia season has also a three-continent leg like this one is, but it's right at the end of the season, and it's Buenos Aires to LA to wherever they flew to. I can't remember. Sydney, Melbourne, one of the two. But the key thing about that is the fact that they all got upgrades on the LA to Australia flight. And the cars they got in LA were the nicest cars they've pretty much ever driven on the Amazing Race. Yeah, and also there isn't much time zone difference either. And they would have had a lot better access to directions as well. (laughs) And I think LA is probably a much more pleasant place to drive around than Havana, being brutally honest about it. So Paul and Steve checking in first, and they win the exclusive opportunity to keep on racing. Yeah, Grant (laughs) trolls them pretty good. Grant is such a prick to them there. And he even shouts at them, come on, it's not over yet, because they're just like completely incoherent, like, oh my god, we've got to do more of this. <laughs> the, also, the extra stress in Cuba that I don't think that maybe some people would assume about it, but you're in a country where the tourists and the locals are really segregated from one another. Like, there were a lot of times where I was walking around Havana, and then there'd be a whistle saying, no, oh, no, you can't go, you can't go that way, you can't go this way. And certain things that you just can't really talk about there. So there's that extra stress, too, when you're probably racing around Havana, when you're interacting with locals saying, okay, I gotta, you know, not say these certain things that like might what? really piss off the government there. Well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a communist country, right? Very, very communist. So you gotta be a bit, so there's, you gotta be a bit more careful in certain ways. Remember this conversation when we do the Beijing leg. That's all I have to say. Bring it back up then. <laughs> yeah. Given just yesterday evening, me and my brother had a conversation about how our hotel room in Beijing was definitely bugged. Really? Yeah. So Michelle and Joe checking in second. Or checking and out in second. And to end the episode, we have three catastrophes. Namely, Shane not being able to get the car into gear. Joseph and Grace's car starting to smoke. And we end the episode with Lucy and Amelia stalling the car on train tracks like they are in a silent movie and are damsels in distress. <laughs> How do you even plan that? To get on t- to stall so on the train tracks. <laughs> like... I like how Shane said too, when the car was stuck on the street, he gets all pissed off saying, oh, we've got the lemon. Every car was the lemon. <laughs> there is nothing exceptionable about your car, Shane, that was worse than anybody else's joseph and grace's car's battery died and then an hour later that same car has a burning smell as if it's ready to explode over the streets of havana you have it pretty good shane and andrew right now and your car didn't stop on freaking train tracks with a train whistle in the distance so next time teams continue to have a smashing time in havana they head to australia but that's a few legs away yet and Taxigate could come back to bite Joseph and Grace. And perhaps the biggest piece of unaired footage of any season of The Amazing Race that was critical to the storyline? Yeah, there's a rather large elephant in the room when it comes to next episode. And the, In fact, there's two, because there's the one that you're thinking of, and there's the other one, which is actually the distinction between double length legs and keep on racing legs. But we'll get to that rant next week. Have you guys got anything else you want to say about this leg? 
Mm, no, all good. Yeah, it's just it's tough. It's tough driving classic Cuban cars after you've been racing for thirty six hours on two other continents. <laughs> yeah, this is I would say a contender for the most punishing like in Amazing Race history. I bet Ross and Taren were watching this episode thinking, yeah, we're okay with being eliminated when we were. I know they got Canada next and they're two really fun, pretty legs, but oh, we'll have to not be uh, having to endure this one. This one seemed tough. Yeah, and yet Paul and Steve, and despite Michelle and Joe's repeated meltdowns, one and two. It's interesting to note that this is Paul and Steve's, this is their third consecutive leg win. Yeah. And yet, they're going to be spared by a major twist next episode. And Michelle and Joe are spared too. And one thing I want to point out before we head into this next episode is Sticky and Sam really haven't had any scenes since the Turkish bath task. For the rest of episode 6 and this whole episode 7, we very rarely see them. And I should note too with Oh yeah, we skipped over this too. When they were in the Paris Metro, when they were using that to get to the footbridge. Because you've done the Paris Metro too, right, Michael? Oh yes. Yeah, it's... If you're trying to get anywhere with the Paris Metro and you haven't been in Paris before, it takes a lot of extra effort to get around. I think they were doing construction on multiple lines when I was there. So it took about an hour longer than I was projecting to get where I needed to be. So I can't imagine Sticky and Sam being in a race with highly competitive teams trying to get there as fast as possible when they're already trailing. So it wasn't a big surprise to me that they fell into absolute dead last by the time they were out of Paris. When we were there, they were on strike and we couldn't even go. Like Second time I've been to Paris and I couldn't go to Versailles again because of the damn trains. One time when I've been to Disneyland Paris, they were on strike at Disneyland Paris. They were striking outside the happiest place in Europe. That was fun. Yeah, well, we had to take a taxi to Disneyland Paris. Can you imagine the price? Oh, my God. That'd be like similar to London prices, I guess, for a cab there, right? It was awful. No, it was France was so expensive. Paris was so expensive compared to England. Yeah, Paris is very, very expensive compared to England. But anytime I've gone to Disneyland Paris, I've gone from Shell de Gaulle, and we get the... TGV, which if you pre-book it is about 20 euros direct rather than doing the weird three trains to go into Paris and back out again, which I know Logan's probably being brought out in hives that haven't spent that much money on any sort of journey. Yeah, I only spent, I only spent two nights in Paris when I was there. <laughs> if you book it on the day, it's at least 60 euros to do exactly the same 10 minute journey on that train. So... Thank you for listening to our Amazing Race Australia recap. We'll be back next week to recap episode number eight. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors. I can email us and contact us at rtvwarriors.com. Logan's on Twitter at Luxacoraki. Michelle is better through And I'm MJ Harmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. See you next week. Bye. Peace out and just chill till the next episode.